Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6. Now, over the last two months, as we've been looking at this book, we've watched Israel descend down a spiral of sin, judgment, rescue, and then return to sin that is worse than the, that of their fathers before them. But of course, at the same time, we've also watched the faithfulness of God as He disciplined His people to turn their hearts back to Him, but then also graciously saved them again and again in this cycle of Judges. As we turn to chapter 6 this morning, this same cycle plays out yet again with the next judge. Now, at least in terms of airtime, as we get into the story of Gideon, Judges spends more verses on Gideon than any other judge. But in all the details, what this lengthy story of Gideon highlights more than anything else is the pervasive grace and mercy of God, who is faithful to His covenant and to his people again and again and again. So I want to jump in and I want to read chapter 6 this morning. It's a lengthy chapter, but I want to read it as we follow God's work in the life of Gideon. Let's read God's word together. The people of Israel did what was evil in sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made them for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would be like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are his wondrous deeds, wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? 
And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my presence and set it before you. And he said, I will wait till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abiasrites. <clears throat> that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it cut down, and the second bowl offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore in that day Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he'd broken down the altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abiasrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If... You will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. 
God, we thank you for this story that you've given us. May we see your character in it and be heartened at the good news of who our God is and what he does for his people. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Many of you are likely aware of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. It's a foundation that seeks to bless children suffering with cancer by fulfilling their wish for a day. Often it's things like a trip to Disney World or, or helping them get a chance to be Bat Boy for their favorite baseball team. Well, in 2013, Make-A-Wish pulled off one of their more extensive projects to meet the wish of five-year-old Miles Scott. Miles's wish? Be Batman. Now, Make-A-Wish went about this. They dressed Miles up as Batman along with a grown-up sidekick and set things up in San Francisco. They rescued a woman tied to a train car. They stopped a man dressed as the Riddler during a theft and they arrested the penguin who was kidnapping the mascot for the San Francisco Giants. At the end of the day, Miles was given a special edition of the San Francisco Chronicle declaring, Bat Kid saves the city, and thanking him for his exploits on their behalf. It was very creative, and you can see what Make-A-Wish was doing. They were setting up parallels between Batman and Miles to suggest to him for a day that he was Batman. Now, The events in Judges 6 are also making a parallel, and they're calling our minds to something. We don't want to miss it. It's not between a five-year-old with leukemia and Batman, of course. It's between Gideon and Moses. As the story of God's call to Gideon mirrors God's call to Moses in many ways. Just as in Exodus 3, the people cried out to the Lord in distress, and God showed up in a miraculous fire in a burning bush, to call Moses to save them, who protested that he couldn't save Israel, but then the Lord gave him several signs to encourage his hesitant heart. So here, Israel cries out to the Lord in their distress, and God reveals himself in a miraculous fire on a rock to call Gideon, who immediately protests that he cannot save Israel, but God assures him by giving him several signs to encourage his hesitant heart. But I think it's important for us to note that the goal here in Judges is not so much to cast Gideon as a new Moses, but to show that the God of the Exodus is still the God of Israel. And the God who fought for Israel in Exodus is still fighting for and delivering his people just as he was back then. That was the question Israel did not know. Is that God still with us? And this narrative emphasizes that he is. He is graciously fighting for and delivering his people, just like he was back then. And that's the main point of this story. As we look at the story this morning, I just want us briefly to see four different ways that God's grace is evident in his care for his people. First, God's grace shows up in verses 1 through 10 by confronting Israel's hearts. The chapter begins as Israel once again does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and once again the Lord gives Israel into the hand of their enemies. Midianites, though, go far beyond demanding tribute. They run a scorched earth operation. As every time crops come to harvest time, the Midianites sweep through, taking all of Israel's crops, all their animals, all their livelihoods, so that Israel is laid waste and forced to live in caves. So once again, Israel cries out to the Lord for help and rescue. Now this is the fourth 
cycle of judges we've gone through in the story by now. And so we know what to expect next. The people of Israel cry out to the Lord and the Lord raises up a deliverer. Except that's not what comes next. Instead of sending a deliverer to save Israel, you see there in, uh, turn my page back, verse 7, the Lord sends a prophet to speak to Israel. That might seem a little cruel. I wanted a deliverer, not a prophet. But this is the Lord's grace at work. See, by this point in the story, we can see that Israel's greatest need is not to be saved from the Midianites. Israel's greatest need is to understand why they keep ending up in oppression in the first place. You know, if a person comes to you for financial help, and even if they're coming to you because of a foolish decision they made, you may well help them in their time of need. But if the same foolish decision leads them to come to you three, four, five times for help, then eventually you're probably going to say, before I help you again, we need to address the reason you're in the position in the first place. Otherwise, my help is not going to do you any good. You're going to be right back asking for more help in a few months. So let's address the root cause. And that's exactly what God's doing with Israel. He's saying, you've cried out for help, but this is the fourth time here. And so he addresses their hearts. Because if their sin is not addressed first, a rescue from Midian will only be temporary. They'll be right back in oppression again. Or to put this another way, we could say it this way, salvation must always start with a genuine repentance of heart. And so God graciously sends a prophet to make the central problem clear. God led Israel up from Egypt. God delivered them from the hand of all who oppressed them. God declared that he would be their God. But he's commanded them because of that not to worship idols of the land. And Israel has not obeyed their voice. That's the problem that needs to be addressed. And that's God's grace in addressing their hearts. I think it's worth remembering in our lives too. That God's first and primary goal is not to fix our circumstances, but to shape our hearts. Even if suffering, in our case, is not a direct consequence of our sin like it was for Israel, God often uses suffering to pry our hearts from idols, to detach our hearts from this world, to force us, to bring us, to fix our attention on Him, and to pique our longing for heaven and for eternity with Him. After all, the Bible consistently says that whether sin, uh, the suffering is a consequence of our sin or the consequence of another's sin or the result of living in a broken world, God's primary interest again and again is not to give us nice circumstances, but to work in all of His people, in our hearts, by drawing us deeply into reliance upon Him and trust in Him and obedience to Him. And God does that by speaking His Word into our circumstances to shape our hearts for our good and for His glory. So here is God's grace confronting Israel's hearts, identifying the reason for their oppression, and calling them and calling us also to repentance, trust, and obedience wherever He has us. But you should notice that this prophet's message is actually pretty unusual. We're missing the last part. At least it feels like that. Usually when God comes with an accusation like, you have not obeyed my voice, that accusation is followed with a conclusion. Therefore, I won't save you anymore. Or, but I will be gracious to you. 
But we don't get it there for. There's no conclusion here. He just says, you haven't obeyed. End of prophecy. God confronts Israel's hearts, but we don't know what he's going to do in response. And that leads us to verses 11 through 24, where we see God's grace a second time. And here, God's grace equips our hearts. You know, verse 11 reminds me of the line from C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is on the move. Remember that line? We don't know what God's going to do yet, but we know He's going to do something because in verse 11, the angel of the Lord is on the move. And He shows up under a terebinth tree to speak to Gideon. And I think you can picture the scene here, can't you? Here's Gideon secretly hiding in a wine press, trying to get some grain where no one will see him. You know how it is when you're trying to do something in secret and you don't want anyone to see you. And all of a sudden, someone speaks to you. And so you can see this sort of sudden, cheerful voice greeting him, probably scaring him out of his wits, saying, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, who's hiding in a wine press so no one will see you. The irony of the Lord's greeting. Gideon's response is so familiar to us, isn't it? Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why are all these things happening to us? How many of us have not asked that question at some point? If God loves me, why am I suffering like this? I think I'm not asking for anything extravagant, God. I just want food that won't be stolen by foreigners. I just want the end of excruciating pain. My heart is just aching for normal things you say are good but seem to be withheld right now. So why, God, if you are with us, is this happening? That's the same question Job asked and David asked and multiple of the prophets asked. It's a question the Lord invites us to ask and bring to Him. Of course, in this case, the prophet of the Lord has just answered Gideon's question. Gideon doesn't know it. God is with Israel, and that's why he has given them into Midian's hand. He's given them into Midian's hand because he's with them, hedging their pursuit of useless idols in order to drive them back to him. This is exactly what Leviticus and Deuteronomy said. They said, I will be with you to punish you and to drive you back to me. So Midian is actually an evidence that the Lord is with Israel, not an evidence that he's not with Israel. But like Gideon, we can so easily see our troubles as evidence that God has left us instead of asking, how is God at work in us right now? You know, Jesus also tells us that in this world, we will have trouble. He tells us that we will suffer in this world. But he promises that he will sustain us and he will work steadfastness in us And he will work Christ-likeness in us. And he will pique our desire for eternity in us through trials. So that our question should not be, where did God run off to now when this bad thing happened? But how is God with me and working in me and through my circumstances for my good, just as he's promised? Well, Gideon asks the Lord where he is in all this. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord responds, I'm right here. I'm going to send you to save Israel. Now that really knocks Gideon backwards, and he responds just like Moses did. Who am I to save Israel? And of course, that's exactly the right question to ask. Gideon has no strength to save Israel. How in the world could Gideon save Israel? 
But God, just as with Moses, gives the one grace-filled response that can equip Gideon for the task. You see what the Lord says there. says it in verse 16. But I am with you. You're right, Gideon, you can't save Israel, but I can and I'm with you. And that is what Gideon needs. You know, that is the most gracious and most effective thing that God could say to equip us for whatever God calls us to do. That God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, would humble himself and come to be with us in order to sustain us and enable us. And that's what God has done again and again. In Genesis 46, when Jacob left the promised land to go down to Egypt with Joseph, God came to him and said, I myself will go with you to Egypt and I will bring you back up again. In Exodus 3, God called Moses to lead Israel from Egypt and said, I will be with you. When Joshua was called to lead Israel into the Canaan and land of Canaan, in Joshua 1.5, God said, I will be with you. When Israel faced exile, God told them in Isaiah 43.2, Fear not when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When Jesus left his disciples on earth and returned to heaven and gave them this impossible seeming task of the great commission, what did he say? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Paul was reviled in Corinth and kicked out of the synagogue, God told him, go on speaking the gospel for I am with you. Do you see the the same thing that God says, the same promise over and over? It's a promise that's made to us. Psalm 23, the Lord, our shepherd says, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. John 14 and 16, Jesus says, I am going to send my spirit who will be with you, the comforter who will lead you in all truth. And so for Gideon and for us, God doesn't give us the details on how things will go in our life. He doesn't tell us all that will be required of us. But he does graciously give Gideon and graciously give us the one promise we do need for whatever happens. I will be with you. And so God's grace confronts Israel's hearts, but then God's grace equips Gideon for this salvation. Of course, the Lord hasn't spoken to Israel in many, many years, and Gideon wants to be certain that this person standing in front of him is actually the God of Israel, so he asks for a sign, which God grants, burning up Gideon's sacrifice on the rock and disappearing so that Gideon knows this was the angel of the Lord. But this vision of the Lord is not a nice postcard moment. This vision of the Lord is one of terror. Gideon thinks he's going to die. Because he has been in the presence of the Mighty One, the Holy One, God, the Lord. And this this vision of the Holy One that explains verses 25 to 32, where we see God's grace for a third time. Here we see God's grace demanding our whole hearts. See, if the Lord is the one and only God, then God must be God alone. Idols must be smashed. Our whole heart must be given to Him And that is for our good. Because hearts that are happy to worship God, but then are still seeking some comfort or help from other things in this world, will still be frustrated and empty in the end. For they will be looking for satisfaction from things that cannot satisfy. And their hearts will not belong to the Lord in full trust and obedience as He deserves. If God is going to be worshipped, He must be worshipped alone. 
And so God graciously demands that our whole hearts would belong to Him completely. So for Gideon, that means destroying the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole that are there on his property or his father's property. Of course, this looks different in different times. For the rich young ruler, 1,200 years later, the same demand will mean selling his possessions and following Jesus. For us in our lives, it may mean a number of different things. Following the Lord with our whole hearts will mean definitively rejecting, smashing, giving up any sin, any action, any desire, any belief, any philosophy, or any approach to life that is at odds with God or His Word in any way. For Gideon, he is called to smash the idols that are right there. Now, Gideon seems to be a uh, a master of furtive secret action here. And so fearing the response of his family in the town, he slips in and carries out God's command at night. Unfortunately for him, the local detectives check security camera footage and figure out that it was him anyways, and so he's in trouble. But surprisingly, his father stands up for him, or at least, at least calls out Baal and says, look, if Baal's a god, he can contend for himself. And so the people, instead of killing Gideon, give him a new name. Let Baal contend against him. Now giving him this new name would be like putting a mark on him. And so they're basically saying, fine, let's sit back. We'll name him, let Baal contend with him, and we'll see what happens. Is a lightning stroke going to take this guy out? Is bad luck going to dog his steps every way? Well, neither happens. Instead, the Spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon, and he sounds a trumpet, gathering men to oppose the Midianite invasion. But here we are. By the time we get to verses 36 to 40, Gideon, sitting there with 30,000 men, he's smashed the idols, he's followed the Lord, but what has to be going through his mind? What would be going through your mind? Surely, what have I done? Is God really able to deliver this horde of enemies into this motley band by me? And so we come to these famous verses at the end where Gideon sets out a fleece and ask the Lord to confirm that he will deliver Israel. And here is our final evidence of God's grace as we see God's grace assure our hearts of his salvation. Now the first thing that jumps out to me in these verses is the Lord's patience and readiness to answer Gideon's request. But how should we understand this passage and how does it imply to us? So let me say two things about this famous fleece passage. First, notice that Gideon's fleece was not meant to help him make a decision. It was not meant to tell him what God's will was. The fleece was there to assure him of God's character. Gideon doesn't say, God, do you want me to attack from the right or the left? Do you want me to attack Midian? No, that's perfectly clear. God's will is 100% clear in this passage. That's, unfortunately, that's the way Christians sometimes apply this passage, saying, I'm going to sit out a fleece, and if this happens, then I'll know I'm supposed to do this. And if this happens, I'll know I'm supposed to do that. It's a way of us setting criteria and asking God to meet our criteria to tell us what we ought to do in life. I don't think Scripture encourages that anywhere. And it's not what's happening in this passage. Gideon's question is about who God is and his desire to be assured of the character of God. Lord, are you really able to deliver a Midian army as numerous as the sands of the seashore into my hands? 
And since Baal was the god who was in charge of the dew, many commentators believe that the specific test is asking for an assurance. God, will you show me? I've seen people worship Baal. I know all these people seem to be successful by worshiping Baal. Will you assure me that you are more powerful and you can do this? So we need to see this is about God's character, not about discovering God's will. But second, even that desire raises questions in our minds, doesn't it? Shouldn't Gideon just trust God? Isn't it a sin to put the Lord to the test like Israel did in the wilderness? And I think here we need to notice the difference. In the wilderness, God had showed Israel time and again His power and salvation. He was patient with their doubts early on. And only after His character had been displayed time and again Did he say, you were called to trust me and you failed to do so? But here's Gideon, called to lead in a time when the Lord's character were stories from the past. The Lord has not spoken to Israel in many times. Gideon may have legitimate questions about who God is and his character and his power, and yet he has acted in faith and obeyed up until this point in every way. And now on the eve of battle, he asked the Lord to assure his heart of his ability to deliver, and the Lord graciously answers. So as we end, how does this apply to us? Has God given us any signs to assure our hearts of his character and his salvation? The answer to that is yes, absolutely. Hebrews 1.1 says, In ages past, God spoke in various ways, through the prophets, through dreams, through fleeces. But now God has spoken once for all at the end of the ages through his Son, Jesus Christ. God has given the greatest demonstration and assurance of his love and his character and his faithfulness to his people in Jesus Christ, such that Paul says in Romans 8, to any who would waver in distress, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not give us all things? And if we want something more tangible, something that we can hold and squeeze out like a fleece full of dew, All we have to do is look in front of us at the table before us. God has given us tangible signs that we can put in our mouth and taste with our taste buds to remind us that God has given us the greatest demonstration imaginable. Assured us of his character and his salvation. So as we end this morning and come to this table, may we marvel at this amazing grace, the kindness of God that confronts our hearts in sin that equips our hearts for whatever God calls us to do, that demands our hearts allegiance to Him, and that assures our hearts of His character and salvation for our good and His glory. Let's pray. Father, You have shown us through this passage who You are and all that You've done for us. Would You now assure our hearts through the Lord's table this morning of Jesus Christ, that greatest demonstration of Your salvation, that we might look to you and be wholly yours and find our assurance in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.